Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today, I've caught Nick Asbury. One of Britain's most awarded copywriters, Nick is a branding and design writer who pens witty and charming words for an impressive list of studios, press, media, shits and giggles. As part of what he says is really one big mix, he produces self-initiated projects with his artist and designer wife, Sue, as part of Asbury and Asbury including the Perpetual Disappointments Diary and Real-Time Notes, which involved three and a half years of posting fast topical poems. Nick has also co-authored the new edition of one of this host's favourite books, A Smile in the Mind, and can often be found venting eloquent fire on his main hobby horse of late, Brand Purpose. Nick says, Growing up in the 80s and 90s, I remember a time when people laughed at ads. Now they laugh at ad agencies. Welcome to the show, Nick. Thanks, Giles. Uh, great to be here. Good stuff. All right, seven quickfire questions, Nick. Pen or pencil? Uh, screen, preferably, but I'll go with pen. Pantone or pentone? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I've got to go with pentone. That's my proprietary, <laughs> proprietary uh, tone of voice system, yeah. Graphic wit or verbal wit? Uh, well, I've got to say verbal wit, but I, I think a lot of graphic wit actually kind of relies on verbal wit at some level. Uh, that's a slightly um, academic answer, but yeah, I'll go verbal. But this is what this is one I found tricky: Bob Gill or Alan Fletcher? Oh, it has to be Alan Fletcher, really. He's a bit of a hero, generally. I mean, they're both uh, legends, really. But yeah, Alan Fletcher, his role in. I mean, not just his work, but his role in kind of starting DNAD and kind of building the design community, writing the art of looking sideways. Brilliant writer as well as designer, I think. So, yeah, Alan Fletcher all the way. Nice. You found that easy. Uh, writing <laughs> for design or writing for advertising? Well, again, I've got to stick up for my territory, really, which is writing for design. Um, but, you know, ultimately, they're kind of the same thing. It's just writing, really. Uh, writing and ideas um but yeah writing for design cool right a couple of daft ones now it's a choice of nation's prayer lyrics next so oxlade as it is in chamberlain or <laughs> as we forgive those who fill jones against us oh christ uh i got in real trouble for writing that poem. <laughs> I know. Was, uh... i've seen some of the comments <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i've never had such like uh i mean i had lots of nice response but it got um this, I mean, for anyone who doesn't know, this was a version of uh, the Lord's Prayer, which I rewrote with um, names of the England World Cup squad. I forget which year it was, maybe 2014, I think. Um, yeah. But yeah, it kind of weirdly took off in like, it, this was relatively early days of Twitter and stuff. 
and it got kind of picked up. The Sun newspaper printed it without permission and without credit. <laughs> the Sun, uh, no. I know, crazy. Um, but God, God, you should have seen the... Uh, I think one of my best reviews was um, something like, I hope you catch cancer and die or something. <laughs> Which wow. Welcome to the internet, everyone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I forget which lines you quoted now, but I'll go Oxley Chamberlain because I'm a Liverpool fan. So. Oh, I didn't know that pre-recording. I wish I had now. <laughs> yeah, we won't yeah. talk Champions League final Madrid. That's that off the agenda. Get onto it later. I do wish Harry be thy cane had been used though. I know it's a line you've commented. <laughs> right, and finally, Elizabeth Holmes or Eamon Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Christ, that is a hard one. Um, Elizabeth Holmes facing 20 years in jail. Eamon Holmes, uh, I don't know what he's facing really. I I believe (laughs) he's not without blame in his life. But I'll go with Eamon. He's a nice guy, I'm sure. Yeah, I should have said Eamon Holmes, OBE actually. So that that might help swing it. Yeah, yeah, Eamon all the way, yeah. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Where we like to start on this show is we like to celebrate and explore the linear and more often than not, not so linear path that guests have taken to get to where they are. So can you tell us what was your first ever job and then what was your first proper writing job? Uh, yeah, first ever job, apart from kind of odd jobs and things, was actually in telesales. Um, so I was I was like the world's worst telesales person I, I was selling advertising space in a magazine um I, I kind of took the job just as a way of moving out the house and moving down to London um and I, I was I was awful at it I'm not great on the phone at the best of times and I'm not I don't like being pushy you know I've got that kind of English thing of not wanting to be too pushy which is not really what you need in a salesperson mm. um but I, yeah I remember being sent on a a course like a it was like a scene out of the office almost, like this really dull sales training course, like a half-day course. Um, but that was my first introduction to like features and benefits and uh, always be closing and all these kind of old-school sales techniques, um, which weirdly kind of stuck in my head and were actually quite good training for um, for copywriting later on. Uh, and yeah, while I, while I was at that, magazine i kind of had a lucky very random break really where the boss kind of put a call out saying he needed someone to write an ad to actually promote the magazine which wasn't you know in my job description at all but i had a go and it kind of got used which meant i had a kind of published ad that i'd written and it was only at that point really that i had the idea of you know being a copywriter i hadn't really um considered it before really but yeah suddenly I had this ad that I could put with a CV and I I applied to I ended up in this fairly lowly ad agency um that specialized in recruitment advertising it's not the most glamorous form of of advertising really you're basically writing ads trying to persuade people to apply for a job but again it was quite kind of old school really it was this was back in the early uh, mid mid to late 90s and yeah, I joined this agency and I was in this, you kind of get paired up with an art director. We would kind of sit in smoke-filled rooms with an A3 pad and a marker pen and kind of come up with ideas. And then I would go off and write some copy and save it on a floppy disk and all that kind of thing. Um, 
So I've got kind of one foot in that world, that kind of old ad agency world. Was that quite a deliberate step, Nick? Sorry to cut you off, but I was just wondering, given you were selling ad space, it seems to be quite a quick just sidestep into the industry. Whereas I know from talking to previous guests that often people either stumble into it by pure chance, Mm. uh, but mostly just simply aren't even aware of the option to become a copywriter. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It, it was it was that really. It was the last, the latter. Um, so, I, I think I took the tele sales job partly. I had this kind of very very vague instinct that doing something roughly in the kind of media world might be a vague direction to go in. Um, I think I had a, a conception. I, it's not that I didn't know copywriting existed because I knew someone wrote the ads on TV and wrote the Economist posters and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the the whole kind of ad agency world seemed impossibly kind of remote to me. It kind of uh, it never occurred to me to try and join that world. But this kind of other world of slightly lower level writing for design kind of direct response writing as well which is really where I started out I didn't know anything about that world it really was happenstance you know that my boss put that call out to write an ad that was if that hadn't happened I don't know at what point I would have discovered copywriting I think it probably would have happened eventually but it is kind of scary looking back how much relies on you know random chances coming your way yeah yeah, it's funny, especially because um, I quoted you. I mean, there was a there was a whole variety of quotes we could have used for, for you, Nick. You're very soundbiteable. But the uh, <laughs> growing up in the 80s and 90s, I remember a time when people laughed at ads. And I really do, too. And I remember I spoke to the brilliant Paul Feldwick recently about his brilliant mm. Barclay card ads and Rowan Atkinson was in. And I remember just enjoying ads. And yet, for some reason, I never really considered that there were people behind the ads. I mean, I might just be Mm. an idiot, but I remember really struggling to make that link to even considering who did the ads and how do I get into that? Yeah, I think I had a, I mean, I was kind of similar, but I guess if anything, I had this idea that it was all people in kind of 80s red braces and, you know, pinstripe suits or something kind of in Soho kind of, I don't know. I had a very kind of eighties conception of advertising in a way. I just thought it was a very amoral, slick commercial world that didn't seem like a particularly uh, cool profession to go into in a way. Yeah, I, I always kind of recoiled from it a bit. I think, even though I did, I remember admiring ads during the eighties a lot. You know, I remember the Independent newspaper launching. I'm not sure what year that was, but they had that line: "It is our you." which I, I always, I remember staring at it kind of on my way into school and just thinking, that's clever. That's just like four words, but it, it kind of says so much. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was kind of noticing ads, but it definitely didn't occur to me to be the guy writing that ad, at least not until much later. And then, so for how long were you sat with your art director in a smoke-filled room with a <laughs> marker and a pad? How did, How long did that go? That went on for about a year, I think. And then... I kind of happened to meet another couple of writers, freelance writers, who were just starting their own company. Again, this is a fairly lucky break, really, but I, I kind of got along with them, joined them right at the beginning, and we we kind of ended up building this uh, quite unusual agency, unusual in the sense that it was run by writers, which you don't tend to see very much. And we grew into this team of about five writers, 
uh, about four or five designers and a couple of account managers. And we were kind of, there was a lot of direct response work we did. We ran kind of direct mail accounts for a few charities. We were around in the the kind of dot-com boom. So we did lots of branding work for dot-com brands that kind of <laughs> disappeared a year later. By coincidence. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> but yeah, I was there for five years and it was... It was actually really good at that age. This was in my kind of late twenties to be, you know, just seeing the whole way in which a, an agency business operates. You know, having to pitch for work and um, hire and fire people and all all that kind of all you know all the day to day stuff it takes the kind of financial stuff of running an agency. And it was it was interesting to see it all. But I, I realised I really wasn't that good at any of it apart from the writing side. So after five years, I, you know, left and became a freelance writer. And I've basically just been that ever since, really, working kind of mainly in branding, design, as opposed to advertising. And I, I think, as you said earlier, kind of generally trying to mix things up as well so that I'm always doing my own stuff as well as client commission stuff. Yeah, I find it, it really helps to keep a kind of lively mix of work otherwise you get kind of bogged down quite easily yeah yeah no for sure and and it, it sounds really refreshing and and wonderful and I'm almost inclined not to try and interrogate that point that you make about it all being part of one big thing it's all just writing but it's kind of my job to try and dig into it a bit so I know <laughs> you, you differentiate between writing for design versus writing for advertising how would you describe that versus writing for advertising how is it different and, and how is it ultimately the same i mean i think first of all to kind of define what it is what writing for design is i think it's basically like everything brands do that isn't a big poster or a tv ad or something it's kind of it's all the other stuff so you know writing a website writing a doing the kind of branding stage of a project so at the early stages of defining a brand you might write a kind of narrative that defines that brand you might kind of help define a kind of tone of voice uh, or a kind of written personality for the brand yeah do, doing all the and doing kind of packaging copy and that kind of thing it's it's all the all the stuff that isn't advertising basically um but i, I think the the real difference between the two like jobs is kind of structural really i think in advertising I've always thought advertising kind of had the right idea, really, because they do petter up an art director and a writer, and you sit in the same room and you you kind of merge your brains. You know, you kind of come up with uh, ideas together, and sometimes the headline might do most of the work. Sometimes it might be the visual, but what matters is is the idea, really. Um, and it, it it's kind of weird in the design world. It doesn't really work like that. You tend to have design companies who may not have a single writer in the company, but they they outsource the writing. They get someone like me to to come and uh, you know work on particular projects. Um, so just in that kind of structural sense, it's quite different the way it works. But you're really aiming to to achieve the same thing where it feels like a seamless. Um, process you know between yeah. the words and the pictures you, you don't want it to feel like the designer's been doing one bit over there and the writer's doing his bit over here it, it should feel like this single act of communication you know um because when you know if you're just a member of the public looking at a poster or something you, you're you're not kind of 
looking at the de- design first and then reading it you're you're just you're seeing it all as one thing and i think that's how you should try and create it as well yeah it's something i've wrestled with myself personally and i've definitely brought it up on the show before the idea of um and it's seen as a criticism and sometimes fairly so of of, of designers say in the advertising industry who are effectively more say stylists or frustrated mm. artists in, in in fact i think it would be fair to say and i've always understood it and rationalized it as one area of creativity and art i've always understood to be kind of pure creativity whereas what we do in advertising is applied creativity because there's a you know a commercial objective often that's that, that's directing it um, mm. but both both obviously need to have a function um, but I'm just interested to know whether that's the case when you're writing for design versus writing for advertising or, or whether I'm trying to blur things here unfairly. That whole area of, you know, what is, what's pure creativity or, you know, what is art versus what is just commercial art. Yeah, you could probably do a whole hour's conversation about that. I think it's, um, I mean, I, I think that there are very blurry kind of lines between these things. And I think some of the best design and some of the best advertising i think can take on the quality of art in a way that it's all in some ways all these things do merge together because even a work of art has to exist in a kind of marketplace and have a a value attached to it um that's true uh, and an audience and so on and so forth yeah and i think i mean one example that often comes to mind when i think about this is do you remember seeing an ad for it was for the last ever episode of friends um, oh, ends Friday. Ends Friday, yeah. Ends just Friday, a Friday, yeah. Yeah, just a brilliant, um, such a brilliant, concise idea. You know, it just does its job so well. But yeah, I, I look at that now, and I think that you could hang that on the wall of the Tate or something. It's it's like it's because it's it tells such a huge story about a particular moment in time. You know, that kind of sense of anticipation of friday night it's coming up this huge cultural event when we all used to watch the same programs together and and yeah it's just such a beautiful witty idea that also just works on a functional level yeah yeah i think you could put it in a frame and call it art um maybe it would be a nft these days or something (laughs) (laughs) don't you start there'll be there'll be daggers out you know that <laughs> I'm really pleased you gave that example, and it's a brilliant example. <clears throat> and I've never, I've never been comfortable using the word "pure" versus as if there is anything you mm. know purer than such a brilliant, perfect idea that you do get in our industry. And you know, you flick through "Smile and Smile in the Mind" that we referenced earlier, or the art of looking sideways, and look at Alan Fletcher's work. There is so much perfect wit within that mm. that I think you're right. They're just as you know, justifiable to f- stick a frame around and admire. So mm. um, it's a good example. Smile in the Mind, I think, is a, an interesting uh, book in a way. It, play, it played an interesting kind of role in my career because it it came out just as I was starting out, just as I got my first copywriting job. And I remember the designers I encountered or the art directors were kind of smitten with it. They, they would all just be poring over it particularly during a brainstorm or something, if they were trying to come up with ideas for another brief, they would just get smile in the mind out and <laughs> for kind of inspiration and in inverted commas. Um, but yeah, I, I remember flicking through it and just thinking, oh, I get it now. I, I see that it's kind of, 
it's not really about art direction versus writing. It's it's all the same thing. It's all ideas, and it's it's trying to it's about kind of lateral thinking and trying to make connections between things. And so it was a real big penny dropping moment for me. I kind of thought, okay, I, I see what the the kind of game is here. So that was great. But then I I think like a lot of people, I I went through a phase of being to you know like trying to crowbar an idea a kind of clever clever idea into every brief kind of thing yeah. uh, and I, I definitely remember you know going through a phase of that and it actually ended up I started like blaming the book for it <laughs> uh, weirdly <laughs> even though really it was me misinterpreting the book yeah. um, but you know I went off smiling the mind and I kind of thought you know oh, it's all just slightly smug pleased with itself um jokey stuff but then kind of later on and particularly when the kind of chance came along to be involved in doing the updated edition I kind of remember my first reaction to it I kind of thought well it was a real eye-opener for me and I hear so many other people saying it was exactly the same for them you know it was the first thing that you know turned them on to ideas and that way of thinking about creativity and stuff so I kind of thought yeah that it, it is a book that should live on and it's it's kind of a misunderstood book i think so yeah it was, it was really cool to be involved in bringing it up to date really and kind of showing that wit isn't just some clever little invitation to a party or something it can actually be a a massive branding idea that's worth millions you know it, it's all about uh as i say kind of lateral connections and just thinking about a problem in a new way and that that can be a a massively powerful commercial thing sorry that was a long smile in the mind pitch there but no uh, no i could listen yeah. to people talk i mean as you know it is, it is genuinely one of my favorite all-time books and mm. it was a it was a complete game changer for me i think it came out when i was doing my um uh or a couple of years before i did my uh, foundation at kingston right and um it, i just it was just it's idea porn. I mean, it was just there was something about anything witty that I just find so admirable. There's few things I admire uh, admire more than just wittiness, and I mean, and I mean that. In fact, on the last episode, which is out tomorrow as we record this, I spoke about that link that I'm sure exists between, say, a stand-up comedy and our industry, and I'm sure that most stand-up comedians could have very successful careers in our industry because wit is such a, you know, it's like it's been described as what the shortest distance between two people making someone laugh. And yeah, if you can design something like some of the beautiful work in smile of the mind, it's so satisfying because you're the reader is expected to kind of close the loop and finish the joke and understand it. Mm. And that's the thing that is often so hard and yet so rewarding to put into a piece of communication, say a printed ad or whatever it might be that mm. leads to things being so effective. I, don't, I think there is plenty of it still around. You know, I still see, you know, lots of nice uses of wit and humour uh, in branding and advertising, and it is still there, but I, I definitely think it's it's fallen off a bit. I think there's a, a tendency to think it's somehow unserious to, to use humour, um, whereas mm. I actually don't think it is. I think... Um, uh, what Clive James said it humor is common sense dancing um, yeah. which I think is lovely it, it's kind of it's a form of rationality in a way humor there's there's a real internal logic to these things and uh, 
So if you're trying to make a rational case to someone that they should buy this product or service or like your brand, it's wit can be a way of speeding up that process in a way. It's it's like it's not that you're you know, people think humor is nonsense in some way, but it's, it's actually it makes more sense than <laughs> rather than less sense. And I and I've always yeah. said you'll find you you'd struggle to find a dumb comedian. Mm. Um, because there is a real intelligence in wit but I think you're right that that maybe within our industry and even outside of it I think as you grow up you become you, you kind of become a bit more flippant or a bit fearful of comedy and, and silliness and but actually I think as adults we kind of really undervalue the importance of just laughing and finding things mm. fun and fun. and I think the world of communications could learn a lot from going back through the 80s and 90s archive ads yeah, I think so. It, it is such a tricky thing to to get right because, you know, I know how annoying it can be when people try and make too many jokes, you know. Um, it, I mean, it's, it is an issue in writing for design, particularly in uh, packaging copy, you know, when you yes. read your cereal packet or something. Yeah. Um, where it's just, oh, for Christ's sake, be serious for once, please, because it, it's like there's this... Slightly I think innocent opened the floodgates, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's not it's not their fault, but uh, all the imitators, I think, are um, have a lot a lot to answer for. But in a way, that's not wit. It's not kind of humour. It's more just inane chattiness. Um, the great thing about the kind of seventies and eighties ads that use wit was they were doing it for a reason. You know, they were wrapping up a a really hard-nosed sales message in a kind of uh you know coating of wit um whereas when you read some of the packaging copy it's just it's not actually conveying any message it's just filling up some space with a kind of vague idea of a personality like look how how chatty we are and how unconventional we are and uh and yet they all sound the same yeah, um, yeah. The irony, the irony is that's the thing. Everything's yeah. relative, and I think when Innocent did it, and they were distinct for doing it, I think now it's become a bit more uh, commonplace, and therefore the mm. opportunity to stand out is is that much less. I mean, you've me- you've mentioned his name already, but Clive James himself. Listen to him talk. I mean, there's one of the most naturally witty and articulate men I think that mm. have ever walked this earth. Yeah, totally. No, I, and I like the way he combined kind of high and low culture in a way. He kind of. You know, he was as happy writing about an ad on TV as he was writing about, you know, Shakespeare or something. It, it was all, it was all up for grabs, kind of thing. I regularly re-listen to his his uh, Desert Island Discs episode that was probably recorded at least twenty years ago now, just because it was it's just such an enjoyable listen and just seeing how he uses words when he's talking is just mm. remarkable. But talking about, uh, you use the word nonsense there a few times. Talking about something <laughs> which uh, I think quite fairly gets that uh, labelled is purpose, brand purpose. Now, yeah, I thought you were going there. I, yeah, <laughs> I couldn't ignore it any longer. But lots of people have been sharing your brilliant start with why, end with wire fraud article, which we've linked to in, in this episode, and quite rightly, because it's it's a, a wonderful deconstruction of brand purpose. But why does dismantling purpose resonate with you so much? Yeah, good, good question. I think um, I started writing about it. I, I was looking back, I think it was in 2016, I wrote my first article about it. And I remember at the time thinking, you know, this is a, a passing trend that will be over soon. Um, but it's got kind of bigger and bigger ever since. And it's 
I think the reason I keep coming back to it is I, I definitely think it's more than just a buzzword or a kind of advertising, you know, a passing trend that's going to be replaced by something else next week. I think it's it's actually a much deeper thing that um, has big consequences in the corporate world and in the in the whole way that, you know, it goes into pretty deep questions about what role should businesses play in society and how can advertising and branding play a positive role in that, you know, and I, it's, it's mm. kind of because I care about those things and I care about the kind of ethics of business. That's the reason why I'm so against purpose. Uh, Cause I think it actually uh, makes all of those issues worse and more confused um, and leads to, well, I think I, I, I've been trying to boil this down to kind of three bullet points really. Uh, for why why purpose is bad uh so one would be it leads to bad advertising and bad branding which i think lots of people would agree with you know i think there were the obviously just terrible hypocritical campaigns and there are endless ones you can point to probably the pepsi carl jenner one would be the obvious example but you know, it, it's pretty easy to pick these out every day. M&M's was the other day. <laughs> um, and it's, I kind of think that's, it's kind of fun to uh, single those out and call them out a bit, but it, it's kind of easy. And I, I don't, I think a lot of purpose advocates would actually agree with you. You know, they would say, yeah, of course they're doing it wrong. They're just um, superficial and not really committed to it. So you can kind of, to some extent, put those to one side. I, I, what worries me more is that the the brands who are genuinely trying to do it properly, I think, get led in a unproductive direction. You know, I think it it actually, if you kind of start with why, you get led in a very generic direction. You know, you, you it tends to lead to very samey, vague propositions that you're putting out there you know every brand just becomes another version of we're here to make the world a better place Um, and the whole point of branding is meant to be to kind of make you different and distinctive and memorable and I I just don't think it serves these companies very well Uh, and you know from the evidence we can see it's it's there was the IPA stuff recently and you kind of think if that's the best case purpose can make for itself it's not great it, it doesn't mean that it couldn't in theory work in future but i think if you're a purpose advocate you you would have to look at that and think well it's not helping our argument you know it's um there are so many obvious bad cases and so few obvious good cases um you know i think it's worth asking questions about okay is this actually working um but yeah that that's just kind of bullet point one really the, the second one would be that it and the second one's really what I care about, which is because ultimately I don't especially care if it helps sell more stuff or not. In some ways, I would almost be more worried if it if it did sell more stuff, because I think the second point is that it leads to bad outcomes for society. Um, and I, I think it does genuinely lead businesses to do worse things ethically. I think there's... I mentioned this phrase and that that uh, 
uh, Substack posts you mentioned, um, Noble Calls Corruption, uh, which I think is a really interesting phenomenon. But it, it's this idea that if, if you convince yourself as a business that your cause is noble, you know, you're here to to save lives or something, um, it becomes very easy, whether it's like conscious or subconscious, to kind of justify any means towards that end, which I think does happen in cases like Theranos and WeWork and quite a few others, where you, you know, you kind of think, well, if we're here to save lives, then does it matter if I slightly exaggerate in a meeting with investors? Um, and if it, if you get away with that, then maybe I can exaggerate a bit more in the next meeting. And before you know it, you're, you're kind of looking at 20 years in jail. We interrupt this podcast to announce that we will never interrupt this podcast with ads. Ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host, Giles, at gasp.agency. Only last week, some pod listing companies did just that, calling for guidance on research and brand positioning. But we're definitely not asking you to do that. Anyway, back to the show. I arched to give him better access as his fingers left. Whoa, sorry. We'll have none of that before the watershed. Hang on. So you kind of see that end goal as being so righteous that, that in the process of reaching it, you can make some very kind of morally dubious decisions and behaviors to justify it yeah and I, um you know i'm not saying that's going to happen in every case but I, I think it's a definite danger if, if you've got this kind of self-image of being this kind of uh yeah you, you the reason you get up every morning is to come in and uh save lives and i, I think it is going to scramble your uh moral compass in a, in a strange way and i think yeah the more generally the, the kind of noble cause corruption cases maybe are they're big and they're consequential, but maybe they're uh, relatively rare. Uh, but but I think what's a lot more common is that it just, for any business, if you're thinking about the kind of ethical decisions you have to make every day um, on a small scale and a big scale, I, I think it just, it confuses those decisions if you think, if you frame it as purpose. You know, I think... To me, it seems so much clearer in a way to say, well, look, what's our purpose? What are we for? Well, we're for profit because there are things called for profit companies and there are things called not for profits. Um, mm. And then that's it kind of sounds like a reductive thing to say, but I don't think it is. I think you can say, yeah, we're a for profit company, but we also want to make sure we do it responsibly, ethically. Um, sustainably and so on and then that's where you get into the the whole nub of it which is okay we need to recognize sometimes those things are going to be in tension with each other and it's going to be hard you know all our incentives are lined up in a way that's about generating profits and um, you know keeping shareholders on board and uh, so you've got to recognize that and then say yes but we also want to be responsible and ethical and you need to wrestle with those things and realize, you know, you've got to be on your guard because if you're not, you might do some shitty stuff, you know. Whereas I think what purpose does is it kind of says, hey, there's no there's no problem here. You don't have to wrestle with these things. Purpose and profit go together really easily. Um, 
And actually, you're the good guys. You know, you, you've got this great purpose. So the more profit you make, the more you're serving that purpose. So kind of chill out. Don't worry about ethics too much. You know, I think it has this counterintuitive kind of effect of actually making you less worried about your ethical responsibilities. Uh, and it's, it's a really tricky case to make. You know, I've tried to to articulate it there. And I can imagine some people are thinking, hmm, maybe. Um, but I'm, I'm going to keep trying to make it and keep trying to nail it, I think. Because um, I, I do think it's 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 happening you know it's out there now purpose is this big meme that's out there in the world and it's it's causing bad things to happen and just just to add an extra dimension to that i think the other thing purpose does i think is it it tends to kind of uh, cheapen and commercialize um kind of moral issues that should matter to to everyone you know i think there's this is kind of a question of taste about the whole thing where i think when you keep sticking your logo on important causes it's just kind of kind of tasteless and kind of demoralizing and just this idea that doing good in society always has to come with a kind of logo in the bottom corner and a sales message subtly added to it um mm. I just i i don't I don't like it, and I kind of instinctively resist it, really. Um, and and just to finish the thought, I think that it kind of leads into the the third bullet point, which would be, I think, all of this on a kind of grand scale is about corporate interest taking over uh, the kind of. Uh, social and uh, democratic realm so it's issues that ought to be decided by democracy and uh, discussion and you know one person one vote instead are getting decided by whichever companies have got the biggest kind of market power um so you, you know you've got your black rocks and unilevers who no one's elected them uh, but they're making hugely, I mean, they're, they're proudly saying that they're going to make all these huge uh, interventions in society and push things in a certain direction. And as I say, no one's uh, no one's voted them in and no one can vote them out. And I, I think it's really dangerous to, to go along with that. Um, it's tempting to go along with it because I think a lot of people on the left kind of think, hey, these guys are supporting our causes our favorite causes and it's tempting yeah. to kind of go along but i i think it's a mistake i think uh all of this is it, it kind of staggers me that we're only about 10 years on from occupy wall street and that whole moment when everyone was turning against you know rightly turning against the um excesses of the corporate world uh and now suddenly the same companies have reinvented themselves as, you know, our saviors, our moral heroes. Uh, got like HSBC all over the high street, telling us we're not an island or whatever it is. Uh, it's just it's it's kind of a masterstroke by some of these companies. I think it's it's hugely concerning. I've um, you obviously can't see this, but I've scribbled a, 
an overwhelming amount of comments that I wanted to. <laughs> yeah, to I covered a fair bit of ground there. Yeah. Well, no, I, that's not no, that's not a criticism at all. If anything, it's quite the opposite because you've covered so many great points. And I promised you before I started recording that I would avoid going on a Mondelez uh, Cabri's rant, but <laughs> um, I called it correctly. I'm not going to. I failed miserably because your last point about corporate interest taking over the you know social and what should be a democratic realm is absolutely true, and it's the hypocrisy that sits within it that I have particular beef with the fact that Cadbury's can donate uh, run their donate your words campaign and raise what I think I calculated to be less than one percent of the corporation tax they dodged the same year that could have gone and would have gone into all sorts of societal or supporting the infrastructure that society and communities are built on and yet win awards at DNAD and, and win all sorts of accolades and praise just seems morally so defunct and so distasteful. And, and I've just got a real, mm. real problem with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I t- And they're, they're by no means the worst offender. I'm mm. always keen to flag that. They just happen to be one that I concentrate my anger on, which isn't necessarily fair. But then mm. I, I think I'm in a higher moral standpoint when my tiny agency of seven people pays more corporation tax than the entire of Mondelez does in the UK. Yeah, yeah. It, it's funny because, I mean, I don't know much about the Capri case, to be honest, but um, you, you can see the, the counter-argument. You, people would say, oh, yeah, okay, they do lots of kind of shitty things, but this is one good thing they're doing. Maybe we should encourage that, give it lots of awards, and then they might do more good things and less of the shitty things. Um, and I, I can kind of see, oh, maybe that's an argument, but if it just feels very naive to me and very, um, it's like you're just rewarding these superficial signals of good behavior and not really interrogating what's, what's going on on a, on the level of actual reality, you know, uh, and I think awards. Yeah, and if you and if you scale that point up to the point where it becomes, you know, ridiculous, I can think of quite notable celebrities who have been found to have done very bad things during their career, albeit they did a bit of charitable work. Mm. I mean, where do you draw? Where do you draw the line? Yeah, I mean, I mean we're all Yeah, we're all hypocrites. I think on on some level, you know, we're uh, yeah, any good act you ever do, uh, I think someone can come out and say yeah but you did this over here as well um but i think one of the differences is when you portray yourself as a as a moral hero which you know we're encouraging companies to do we keep saying to them you know you need to discover your why you need to define your purpose and it it needs to be this kind of noble social purpose um it's and yeah when you define yourself that way then the hypocrisy becomes really tangible i think because it yeah um yeah, it just becomes irresistible to point it out. It feels like a kind of moral duty to point it out, really. It does, yeah. it does. But you're, you're, you're absolutely right to make that point as well and clarify that because you're right. I, I think if there is a commercial entity that is using its privileged loopholes to dodge paying taxes in certain countries mm. because of it, you know uh, commercial interest, that's fine, as long as you're not also claiming to be doing something that's so wonderful for society at the same time. It's, mm. it's the hypocrisy. It's not the practice necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I do think that's... Um something businesses could I, I do think it would be if you could magically make the word purpose kind of evaporate <laughs> tomorrow um, I do think that's something businesses could 
if they were more in touch with reality in a way, you could actually say, look, when it comes to ethics, the, the better approach is to kind of under-promise and over-deliver, you know, mm. rather than make yourself out to be this hero on a mission. Just kind of keep it down a notch. Um, keep it slightly below the radar. Maybe don't make it the center of your marketing. Um, but at the same time, try and, you know, genuinely try and do good things in the realm in which your business operates. I, I think I, I don't agree with businesses just suddenly taking a position on some completely unrelated subject. But, uh, but I think within your world, you know, within your sector, there are always going to be, you know, issues that you could make a difference on or campaign on in some ways. Um, and they're often more down to earth issues, I think, you know. I was going to say, I also think the word purpose actually in some instances is the right word to use and we shouldn't be ashamed of commercial purpose. And I know I have read out this particular paragraph that I adore in Steve Harrison's Can't Sell, Won't Sell, mm. and I'm not going to do it again. But the gist of the argument is that every time, what you know, if you run an ad that helps sell a product, every time that product sells, it helps pay the wages of the guy who made the product the guy whose shop the product was in to sell the person who cleans the shop that sells the product mm. uh, you know there's a whole chain of beneficial commercial consequences from a sale that actually do benefit individuals at the same level that lots of people are probably trying to suggest they that they they achieve through a brand purpose mm. yeah totally i mean i think uh, I mean, I know you've had Steve on here before. I think his book was a really brilliant kind of intervention in all this. It kind of did puncture a lot of the um, the kind of pomposity around the whole subject. Um, that particular passage about, you know, you buy something and it helps all these people down the chain. It's true, but I know some people would kind of scoff at that. They would say, yeah, but in reality, you buy something off Amazon and Amazon pay minimum wage to some poor bloke who's working long hours. Um, and, you know, the, the money ends up going to Jeff Bezos and his mission to the moon or whatever it yeah. is. Um, so, yeah. you know, you, you can, I, I do basically, I, I basically agree with Steve on, I, I do think businesses underestimate the positive effect that they can have just by being good businesses and, you know, employing people and, being part of a community and uh, as you say you know paying suppliers and uh, you know you you've got a lot of power as a business to do good stuff in the world in a kind of down-to-earth way um, but yeah I, I can see I, I can see that would be the pushback against Steve's the way Steve kind of frames it there is that you can't just kind of rely on the good effects just rippling down by some kind of law of gravity or something it's like there are problems you know for some reason we seem to be producing a lot of tech billionaires and uh, a massive wealth gap and um uh, so true. there are problems that need solving but but oh, yeah, there's all sorts of routes to market and channels which yeah. are far more morally superior than others absolutely yeah do you think ad agencies are at fault at all here for encouraging brands towards social purpose i mean i know speaking as someone who runs a small agency i know that it would be relatively easy to sell versus probably what we do we do try and sell um such as the uh you know the way it can reduce a lot of friction mm. 
Um, but I wonder if you think there is any fault on agency side. Uh, I do. Yeah, I think there's actually quite a lot of fault on on the agency side. I think my reading of it is that the the kind of ad agency and branding world really did play a big role in popularizing this whole purpose uh, idea. Um, and weirdly, actually, I think a lot of people in advertising have moved on from it. They actually roll their eyes a bit and think it's a bit old hat to talk about purpose these days because I think people in advertising generally are always keen to jump onto the next trend. Um, <laughs> and it's Suggesting we're all magpies. <laughs> we are partly. But you know, it's like the biggest fear of anyone in advertising to be seen as somehow uh, behind the times. You know, you, you've always got to be up with the latest thing. And I, yeah. I did get some reaction when I uh, wrote some of these purpose posts recently. Um, I remember an advertising planner saying to me, oh, you know, we were talking about this years ago. Why are you still writing about purpose? And But I, but I think the, the thing is, even though ad agencies have moved on, the idea that they helped to seed has just exploded in the corporate world and it, it's it's never been bigger um and I'm, I'm not sure everyone's it's partly what i'm trying to do in these substack posts is um alert people to the um the bigger stuff happening in the corporate world as a result of all this you know because now you've got instead of uh you know some ad agency talking about purpose as might have been the case a few years ago you've now got larry fink with a uh, you know, at BlackRock, who ma- manage $10 trillion in assets around the world. You know, it's a huge portion of the uh, kind of global economy that they, they steer. Um, and yeah, Larry Fink is sending out his letters every year saying purpose is the only game in town. And if you want, you know, uh, funding and investment from us, that's, you know, you have to to toe that line and it, it's become a huge kind of political issue um mm. but my my kind of positive outlook i think would be that having helped create the meme in the first place uh i think the advertising world and the kind of design and branding world can be can actually play a very good role in uh dismantling the meme and kind of uh developing some kind of immunity to it because i think we are quite good in our world i think the kind of ad agency world the creative world we're quite good at um coming up with ideas and and spreading them you know and i think we did i mean it's not the purpose came solely from the advertising world it was kind of a bigger thing in the corporate world as well but um but i think we did play a big role in making it cool making it trendy um because as you were suggesting before it's quite an easy sell to clients if you sell clients hey you guys have got this amazing purpose you know you're great um and you can make lots of money you don't have to make any compromises you can still keep you know uh all the the perks you had before but you can also get to have a halo as well um mm. and it, in some ways it's no wonder clients lap that up it, it's bound to make you feel good Exactly. And, and actually, I think there's a, there's another point there, which is it's it's definitely easy to sell. But I don't know if it's easier to sell as it is as the client side, harder to say no to because <laughs> you don't want to be the guy saying, no, totally. I don't want to do something good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that's part of its power as a meme, really, is that it is hard to speak up and say, 
Yeah, I don't think so, though. You know, it's because it's I find it very hard when I'm making these arguments. I, I feel like I keep having to come back to, look, I'm not against doing good things. You know, I'm actually very much for doing good things. But I'm sure it's the same for clients in these meetings. You know, it's like it's hard to speak up and say, no, purpose isn't the um, the way to do it without sounding like you're some kind of cynic who's only in it for the money kind of thing it's it is a hard thing to separate out it is uh, funny enough we had a uh, a wonderful guest thomas colster uh, come oh, yeah. on the show a few months ago and i won't lie um and i don't mind him hearing this but i was actually slightly concerned about recording the episode prior to us doing so because i thought oh no me and thomas are really going to disagree and clash but actually uh, and going back to the first of your three bullet points that you, you made earlier mm. he said exactly the same thing and we were much more on the same page than I ever, you know, anticipated. It was a wonderful mm. episode. Um, and he made the same point about it leading to bad advertising. Mm. And I'm sure he also suggested that that hypocrisy that we've touched on, the other almost kind of passive negative effect of that is it's it's therefore only short term because if it's done for short term commercial gains, i.e. it's seen as a trendy thing to say and do and, you know, increase your sales, mm then the business that's making these claims is unlikely in it for the long run. So actually, it's not even as if they're going to follow through and deliver on this purpose. And it just made it even seem even more bitter than I had anticipated. But you're right, leading to bad advertising, basically, or bad practice. Mm. Yeah, no, I I uh, listened to that episode. I thought he, he did talk a lot of sense, Thomas Colster, I think. And I, I think one thing that I liked was him saying rather than making yourself the hero as a brand try and think of yourself more as the kind of enabler in a way of what the um what the customer wants which i think is a better way around of thinking about it you know i still slightly shift uncomfortably because i feel like he's he's tried to keep the purpose idea alive in a slightly different form um whereas you know i do firmly believe it needs it, it it just needs to go and i think everything becomes clearer uh once it does but I, you know, I've always said I think there are very sincere and smart and well-intentioned people on the other side of the argument. You know, and it's not even two sides; it's kind of more complex than that. But, but you know, people like Thomas and others that I, you know, I don't question at all their sincerity in wanting to, you know, have a world where advertising and business and you know all of it is playing a, a better role. Um, so it is good to have these conversations. I think it's nice the way you invite people from from different sides of the argument to kind of uh, join in what is basically one big conversation. Yeah, but I don't, I don't think it's been deconstructed as well as your article uh, this week, which um, actually leads me to the first of our listener questions. Oh, OK. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. I've actually got a few, so I'm going to cherry pick two of them. The first I want mm-hmm. to put to you, Nick, is from a great guy called Paul Bailey, a strategy director at Halo, a wonderful agency oh, yeah. in Bristol I think you're familiar with. Um, mm. Paul, Paul has asked, you've written much about purpose, very well, I might add, but what is your advice to business on how involved it should become in social matters? Are we able to draw a line between the social, economic and cultural spaces 
or has the merging of spaces become permanent? Yeah, that's that's a big one. Um, I mean, in terms of how businesses should become involved in social matters, I kind of think you know you are involved in social matters, whether you like it or not. You know, all businesses uh, operate in society, uh, and you you got to come up against ethical questions every day in, in the line of just doing your core work. I think generally businesses should care about things that directly touch on their core work and you should be, you know, trying to, uh, I mean, just, just to give an example, I think if you're a design agency or an ad agency, there's a, you know, a longstanding issue with a, a culture of long hours, working late, pulling an all nighter before a pitch, that kind of thing. That That's a an issue, a kind of, social issue that directly touches your work and something you can actually do something about and it might be tricky you know it might uh, get in the way of um, you know you might be worried that it's somehow going to affect productivity or something Um, but you know it's an issue you can grapple with and I think it's more meaningful than trying to take a stance on you know Israel Palestine or something it's (laughs) you know it's it's I, I, I just think try and stick to what what directly um borders on your on your business that would be my general advice um yeah focus on what you can actually have an influence on yeah Uh, it's it's a really good answer it's a really good answer i mean there um, wasn't necessarily a second part only um paul mentioned at the end has the merging of spaces become permanent and i suppose mm. i remember talking to bob hoffman a couple of years ago now and we were talking about how um ad tech has kind of bled into society and culture to the point where it is, uh, well, if you, if depending on what you believe, it is quite a significant instrument in, say, political elections and democratic process. Mm. Um, and in many ways, that then has bled into, you know, this this space or this merging of spaces that Paul's alluding to has become mm. very blurry. Now, I don't know if that's just my impression because that's my you know, my experience of working mm. in this industry for a couple of decades, but actually historically I may have, may have been an alternative or an equivalent even. Mm. It's hard to know. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how, how much it's kind of a new thing, this kind of merging of spaces, but I, I definitely think it's it's a, a problem and something to be resisted in a way. I think, you know, it, it used to be, certainly, you know, when I was growing up, I think most people on the left would say we want to keep big business out of politics you know that that was kind of taken as as read that you would want to do that have this kind of separation between the commercial realm and the democratic realm whereas now it it feels almost the opposite it's like the left in particular you know which i consider myself part of wants big business to to ride to the rescue and be the you know almost take over what the stuff that we used to leave to politicians and yeah you can you know understand it in a way because politics has been pretty messy lately um, but I, I think it's it's a mistake to think that um, we should therefore leap out of that frying pan into the big commercial fire yeah great answer oh and actually this this segues quite nicely into um, our other question from Andrew Spurrier Dawes ASD who is a mm. an alumni of, of, of Call to Action and a, and a good friend, as is Paul. He says, has there always been trendy topics like the rise of purpose, start with why, Gary V, etc., or is this a modern phenomenon? And if so, why has it happened? 
I would say it's not a modern phenomenon, really. I think uh, you mentioned uh, Paul Feldwick before. I think I've got his book, Anatomy of Humbug, mm. on my desk. And I think that's a really good, if you want just a kind of short read about the history of advertising, I think it's, it's brilliantly accessible. And uh, But it, the main thing I took from that is that there have always been these trendy topics, if you like, these schools of thought. You know, it would have been... Uh, USPs for a while or you know it's, you've kind of got the early days of advertising where it was all about the kind of science of salesmanship and then you've got the 50s and 60s where it's all about the more kind of subtle art of persuasion <laughs> and subliminal advertising and the hidden persuaders and all that stuff and and throughout all these periods you know you've got various figures the the kind of uh Gary V's or Simon Sinek's of their age who are kind of leading various schools of thought. So I, I think that, and even words like branding and stuff, that, that wouldn't have existed in the, the 70s. I think you would have talked about corporate identity and then, you know, someone comes along and says, no, it's all about branding now. And uh, so I think that there's always been people making a name for themselves by, you know, pushing a new buzzword as the big new thing yeah uh possibly it's kind of accelerated a bit recently with social media and stuff um but I, i'm not sure it's a wholly new thing i, I think it's yeah I, I would say it's always been part of our our industry to some extent and it's, it's actually really good reading i think generally in advertising we don't have a great sense of our history you know um because it's seen as you know why the hell would you need to know about yesterday's stuff it's all about you know selling now uh, but it, i think it means we just keep having the same arguments yeah. again and again and um you read paul's book and i think it's it does just open your eyes to the fact that you know lots of very smart people have thought about exactly the same questions in the past and mm. uh, there's plenty you can learn from going back and reading about it yeah and a lot seems to get redefined or or communicated as if, as if it's been rediscovered but it's actually just been relabeled mm. from something that you know existed decades ago but um, yeah totally i mean even purpose is a kind of relabeling of an older argument that goes back to the kind of 1950s um i mean i won't launch into it now but it, it is yeah it's the latest incarnation of of an older thing um we seem to be stuck with it for a while at least the four pertinent posers are the final part of our interview uh, nick starting with uh, what advice would you give to your younger self uh yeah i mean it sounds weird but I, my advice would be be a writer because it, it took me a long <laughs> time to it, it just took me forever to figure out that that's kind of what i was good at and what i should do um, so I think if I could have discovered that maybe 10 years sooner, it might have been worthwhile. <laughs> You'll be 10 years further on. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Yeah, Amazing. Yeah. Uh, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? <laughs> yeah, I think we, we may have done yeah. that already. It would definitely be, um, yeah. If not purpose, I think I've got a, another... Uh, bugbear which is tone of voice i don't know if it's a phrase you come across a lot but certainly in the writing for design and branding world there's this obsession with tone of voice and tone of voice guidelines 
Um, and I, yeah, I've got this long-standing kind of problem with it where I feel like it's a back-to-front way of looking at the way brands should use words, really. I think um, it puts all the focus on personality and style rather than on content and what actual point you're making. And, um, yeah, I could talk about that for a whole other hour or so, but purpose first and tone of voice second. <laughs> tone of voice <laughs> and friendly fire. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, okay, yeah. number three is any books that you would recommend to our listeners? We will link to real-time notes and, and perpetual disappointments diary. Oh, cool. Thanks, yeah. Um, yeah, one I would recommend, there's a kind of a podcaster and a Substack writer I follow a lot, a guy called Robert Wright. Uh, he's an Amer- American uh brilliant writer quite a funny guy um writes about history and politics and religion and evolution and quite wide-ranging topics but he's got a book called non-zero uh the subtitle is history evolution and human cooperation uh but he's just he's a very cool guy he's got a uh, substack called non-zero as well um and i would just recommend you go and check him out really it's 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 only it's not really related to advertising, but it's related to purpose because he's actually he's quite big on purpose and whether life and you know whether the unfolding of history is actually serving some kind of higher purpose, um, which I actually find quite interesting. You know, the the irony of a lot of this stuff is I'm quite interested in purpose in the broader sense in the non-commercial yeah. realm. Um, and yeah, I just think he's 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 worth seeking out. He does a good podcast as well, the Right Show, and uh, he's he's one of my favourite kind of writers and thinkers. Oh, brilliant, excellent. That's ne- definitely not come mm. up before, so I will certainly include mm. that. And we'll also link to Smile in the Mind, obviously. Nice. And then uh, number four, we always dedicate every episode to someone, and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view to our guest who has to give their reason why. So. Nick, would you kindly dedicate this episode? Uh, yeah, I, I thought I'll try and go for someone unexpected. So I've gone with Paul Newman. Uh, you know yeah. Paul Newman, the yeah, actor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he's actually, he's kind of an unsung hero of branding and copywriting uh, because he, you know, he had this um, range of uh, salad dressings that he launched. I don't think I do, no. Tell me, tell me. Yeah, he's got this this, uh, brand race called Newman's Own. It still exists. Um, But he set it up in the 80s as a kind of joke. It was just his homemade salad dressing and he he ended up kind of launching a business. And it kind of weirdly took off, made lots of money. And and he always had a great kind of sense of humour about it. He had a brilliant... um, the, the early bottles of salad dressing had a line on them, fine foods since February, <laughs> which I thought just such a, such a great way to launch a new brand. Um, and he, but the, the, the coolest thing he did was all the money he made, he decided he was just going to give it all away to charity. So it, wow. and he set up this um, unusual structure where he's got this kind of private company that basically flogs salad dressings and pizza and various other things uh and then all they keep enough money to cover their operating costs but all the rest goes to this separate 
charitable foundation uh, that's run by people who actually understand social issues, uh, and they, you know, use all the the profits to fund uh, charitable work. Um, and it's like it's this really unusual business structure. And he wrote a book about it. It was his book is called um, "Shameless Exploitation in Pursuit of the Common Good," uh, and it's. I think he's just, in some ways, he ties all of this kind of stuff we've been talking about together, I think, because he's, he actually does purpose in a way, but I think he would hate the idea of yeah. purpose. He was always, he 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 said he was against uh, noisy philanthropy, he called it. He, he didn't like the idea of shouting about doing good things. Um so I don't think he would have liked grand purpose as an idea, but he's actually had a better effect on the world than most um, so-called purpose-led businesses have had. Wow. Uh, but then the other thing is he's just got a great sense of humour and he always just, he didn't take himself too seriously, but he did a lot of good in the world as well. And yeah, a, a cool guy who's worth, um, I think it was his birthday yesterday, actually, as we as we were talking, so kind of appropriate to pick him out yeah that's a fantastic dedication i never knew that i'm gonna to have to look that up i'm gonna go on a little <laughs> a little google trip i might do a I might do a sub stack about him oh you should point. you should that's wonderful mm. and it fits in so perfectly with, with the brand purpose discussion mm. not least because he clearly hasn't been shouting about it which actually made me quite sad i suppose in a way when when the wonderful afterlife ricky gervais netflix park bench stunt that they've done this week to donate 25 park benches i saw the plaque and sadly it's uh taken up with a big netflix logo and qr code oh, and a bit of branding <laughs> for afterlife it is admittedly also nice. done in partnership with calm which is a wonderful brilliant charity that does incredible things but <clears throat> just left mm. a sour taste that they had to have a big netflix logo on it but anyway mm. this episode is very proudly dedicated to paul newman then and we'll link to his book as well in this episode because that sounds absolutely fantastic um so everyone can find all of those links at calltoaction.co um where else can our listeners get more nick asbury uh i think the two places are nickasbury.substack.com which is where i kind of write these long essays mainly rants about purpose uh, and then on Twitter, I'm Asbury and Asbury, uh, all one word. I should, um, the other Asbury and Asbury and Asbury is my wife, Sue, who um, has somehow become quite a brilliant painter. Um, so if you want to check out any kind of contemporary painting, go to sueasbury.co.uk. Absolutely. And yeah, that's... that's uh, all the plugs we'll, we'll link to sue's work as well actually because i i was looking at her paintings earlier and i was gutted because there was one which i adored that sold oh really yeah oh well well nick thank you nice. so much for joining us i've been really excited about recording this and it was wonderful to talk absolutely loved it thanks yeah no enjoyed it very much thanks and finally thank you to everyone listening if you've enjoyed this episode please do share and review the pods keep the questions and guest requests coming in to get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or email hello at calltoaction.co.
action But I try And I try And I try And I try Yeah, hey, hey. 